At 11 o'clock, an army corporal dropped the needle into the well-grooved lines on the record player. And over the loudspeaker, across the Fort Lawton base on August 14, 1944, it was time for soldiers to begin settling in for the night. Allied troops had recently marched into Paris, and suddenly, the bucolic Fort Lawton became a hub in a huge war machine looking to ship out soldiers to the Pacific from Seattle's port. Fort Lawton was a gem of a base, spread across more than 700 acres. It was beautiful, postcard-worthy even. But there was darkness too. In 1944, the army was segregated. The so-called colored section was designated at the furthest region of that sprawling fort, next to the Italian prisoners of war barracks, a company of 200 former enemies who now claimed allegiance to the United States. The Italians were paid to do menial jobs, but had free range of the base. To me, they was happy-go-lucky guys. They had more thought than we had. They could move any time of day or any time of night and go where they want to, but we couldn't. But things didn't quiet down that pitch-black August night. About 10 minutes after taps, three Italian prisoners of war returned from town, and they came upon three African-American soldiers. All had been drinking. Words had been exchanged and resulted in an Italian prisoner of war knocking out a black soldier cold with one punch. Within minutes, 200 black soldiers descended on the Italian's barracks, hell-bent on avenging their friend, picking up whatever weapons they could get their hands on along the way. Knives, rocks, sticks, bricks, and boards from a picket fence. 40 minutes later, help finally arrived to break up a chaotic melee. Dozens of Italian prisoners of war had been beaten, many seriously injured, broken bones, concussions, bruised bodies. By dawn, though, a devastating discovery. The body of Yelmo Olivato was found hanging between two maple trees. He'd been lynched. If you believe the prosecutor assigned to the case, Leon Jaworski, Olivato was murdered by jealous black soldiers. Ultimately, 28 black American soldiers were convicted of rioting. Two were convicted of manslaughter. It would take over 50 years for the real story to come to light when an inquisitive reporter, Jack Hammond, came upon the unusual grave of an Italian prisoner of war at Fort Lawton who'd been hanged by black American soldiers? That curiosity would take Jack to Texas, where he would interview a soldier by the name of Les Stewart, who put a question to Jack he would never forget. If I'm going to kill a man, why would I mention? Why would I, a black man from the South, use that of all ways to, to kill someone? And it was, the, the, the nature of his interrogation of me was, you, you don't know anything about this. You don't have any clue. That exchange would come to haunt Jack over the years until he decided to take a deeper look. What he would find was essentially a smoking gun. Of what had been for 50 years a classified secret report that showed the United States Army and Leon Jaworski knew before they prosecuted these men that they 
likely did not do it. Would the truth finally come out of who killed Guillermo Olivato? I still believe this day that no black man never hung no man. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. It's so sad to hear that part of our country's history. I think we all know that that is part of our history, but it's definitely not something we like to, to think about or dwell on because it's so painful, you know? And, and there were a couple of things that really struck me as you were doing your scene setter. One of them is the fact that the Italians were allowed to roam the base and the black soldiers were not. Bases were segregated back during World War II. And I was, I was doing some more research, you know, to find out what it was really like during World War II for these black soldiers. And they had separate hospitals. They had separate everything. I mean, they weren't allowed in the white parts of the base, of the fort. And yet the Italian soldiers were. That alone tells you, you know, we've got prisoners of war who are being treated more respectfully than those soldiers who are fighting on behalf of our nation's freedom. And there's a there's elements of the story that twists the knife even further on that narrative, which is absolutely accurate and in the history books. But so much of this case is not in the history books. Right. The other thing that was really surprising to me was you mentioned that the black soldiers, how they were grabbing knives and weapons and whatever they could. They're soldiers. You would think these are soldiers. They have knives. They have guns. But in fact, during World War II, because of the way that they were treated as second class citizens, I mean, hardly citizens at all, really, they didn't often have weapons because they were relegated to jobs that didn't require them. They weren't allowed to do you know, frontline work. Most of the black soldiers did things like minor mechanical repairs and, you know, handyman type work around the base. They had jobs that were deemed menial and less important. They weren't given those high ranking positions or, you know, frontline fighting positions very often. And so it makes sense that they wouldn't have those weapons on them. Yeah. And so uh, just to set this up, you know, no soldiers, black or white, could carry a gun at Fort Lawton unless they were military police. And we'll find out that as we peel back the layers of the story that the military police were nowhere to be found that night when all of this happened. And Kim, this is the classic onion metaphor, you know, peeling back the layers to get to the truth. And it's a very dark truth. And that truth would probably never have seen the light of day had it not been for the work of that reporter whose name is Jack Hammond and then his wife, um, Leslie Hammond. And I'll explain that dynamic a little bit later. For this episode, not only did I interview Jack, I read his incredible book on this story on American soil, how justice became a casualty of World War II. And because of all the black American soldiers in this story have since passed away, he was kind enough to actually dig into the archives and grab me a link to a documentary that he had put together for King 5 News with audio from interviews with the, the black soldiers back in 1987. But first, we need to go back to 1987 before we go to 1944, where we find in 1987, Jack, a board reporter covering a story on a treatment plant at the base of Discovery Park 
Park in Seattle. The city of Seattle owned the bulk of what was then Fort Lawton. So it basically had changed from a fort to this huge, beautiful park. And during that press conference, Jack got to talking with a park ranger about the military cemetery that was on the property. And it had a unique headstone that was separate from all the rest in that cemetery. And it's shaped very strikingly like a, uh, a Roman column and designed as if that column's top has been broken off. And she said, the inscriptions on the bottom are Greek or Latin or something. And she says, nobody really knows why it's there. So the moment that meeting was over, I, I hightailed it to the graveyard. And sure enough, on the far end, there it was, very large, very different than all the others. And it was clear that the writing at the bottom was not Greek or, or Latin. It was in Italian. And it said, Italian soldier Guglielmo Olivoto. And it showed that he had died on August 14th, 1944. And I looked at that and I thought, 1944, that was still World War II. And what was an Italian doing in Seattle in 1944? And, and why is he buried in a military graveyard? I love this guy because one of my very favorite thing to do when I visit a new town, or actually when I visit old towns, is to go look at the cemetery. And this reminds me of not too long ago, I was up in Roslyn, Washington. They have such an interesting cemetery. If you are ever in that area, I highly recommend checking out the Roslyn Cemetery. They had segregated graveyards because this cemetery dates back a couple hundred years probably. But one of the areas of this graveyard was for the black people who were brought in to work in the mines. And it was segregated from other parts of the graveyard. And it had very simple white crosses with no ornamentation. And there was about 100 of them. I, I just think it's interesting when you compare what that gravestone looks like. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like it's somewhat impressive. And it sounds like some thought and some work went into that. And then I think to the graveyard in Roslyn, which around the same time had these black miners who were buried with not even their names mm -hmm. on their headstones. I mean, it just shows you the difference in the way that people were treated. Yeah, and I think that as somebody who's grown up in the Pacific Northwest, and I've been to Discovery Park on many, 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 many occasions, love the park, I'd never heard of this story either. And my daughter and I, we went to the Fort Lawton Cemetery and sure enough, in this corner way, you know, you have this, it's, you know, when you go to a military cemetery, it's so, you know, you just have this feeling of like, you know, these these soldiers gave their lives mm -hmm. to protect our freedoms, you know, in, in that respect. And then over in this corner, it's like this column that's been sheared off. And it definitely is like, what what's up with this? I could see why he would think that. But I think that if you did a poll, like many people in Seattle, long lifers would not know this story. So Jack's curiosity was piqued. This was pre-internet, so he <laughs> slogged to the library and looked at headlines on microfiche for August 14th, looking for what happened during that time period, 1944. He couldn't find anything. He went on to the 15th, and it wasn't until the 16th that he hit pay dirt. But on August 16th, there were these blaring headlines that said that there had been a riot at Fort Lawton and that a prisoner of war had been lynched, and that at that moment, 200 American soldiers were being held as possible suspects. And all 200 
were African-American. Well, it just totally blew my mind. I had never heard of such a thing. I had never seen it in school books or read about it or anything. 200 people arrested. 200 black people. But I'm I'm just thinking about the sheer, I mean, forget about, you know, who was who and where they came from and everything else. We've got one person killed, 200 people arrested. That is just incredible numbers that are just ridiculous. Yeah. So being an enterprising reporter, Jack convinced his editors at King 5 TV. Now, remember, this is 1987 to let him do a documentary. And they sent him to Texas to interview some of the black American soldiers who'd been court-martialed back then. But in essence, in 1987, I told a story that said, wow, Seattle and Washington, there was this amazing trial in 1944. And it was the largest of World War II. And all of these defendants were African-American. In the end, they ended up charging 43 of them. And they killed a, an Italian prisoner of war. And of all things, the prosecutor for it was Leon Jaworski, a man whose name was extraordinarily famous then because he was the, the lawyer who many, many years later was the uh, prosecutor for the Watergate uh, affair and the winning lawyer in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, U.S. v. Nixon. And the documentary, in essence, to be fair, was a gosh golly gee, look at this. Isn't this amazing? This was part of our history. Now, the African-American defendants that I talked to during my conversations with them basically said, well, we didn't do it. But I believed at the time, well, what's somebody going to say when they're convicted of a crime? Of course, they're going to say that. It's so sad how many people in our history were so respected, did so much that impacted our nation for so long, and yet had these dark pasts and did things that are inexcusable. And it sounds like Jaworski is going to be one of those. <laughs> Stay tuned. Oh, my gosh. Um, so... That documentary went on to receive accolades and awards. Jack would go on to have an amazing career as a journalist and documentary filmmaker. And in 2001, he was at a point where he wanted to work on a story of his choosing with his wife. We're sitting around talking and saying, you know, that Fort Lawton story, isn't there something weird about that? I mean, a lynching that you don't ever hear about again and, and the largest trial of the war you don't hear about and they're all black every single defendant was black black people doing a lynching it actually started that way it was like an over the kitchen table conversation between the two of us so i pressed him on the story what made him go back to it after all these years and he said he'd been haunted during his interview with some of those 43 defendants a man by the name of Les Stewart. He was one of the few defendants I was able to reach and eventually interview back in 1987. And when I did the interview, I still have to admit that I went about trying to essentially have these guys describe what happened, but frankly, with no attitude or opinion that they might be, in fact, innocent, especially all these years later. And at one point, you could see Les Stewart just had this expression on his face of almost contempt for, for the kinds of questions that I was asking. And I was trying to pull out more and more. And I made some comment about lynching. And he, he looked at me and he said, if I'm going to kill a man, why would I lynch him? Why would I, a black man from the South, use that of all ways to, to kill someone? 
He said, if I was going to kill someone, I had access to a knife or, you know, almost anything else. But he said, do you have any idea what it means to lynch someone? And it was the, the, the nature of his interrogation of me was, you, you don't know anything about this. You don't, you don't have any clue what it is that you're, you're alleging here. What's unfortunate is that when I went back to Jack and said, hey, you know, I was hoping, do you have the, all this audio? Because he went on this huge road trip and talked to so many people. And he doesn't have any of the audio, which is such a tragedy because it's, you well, want to hear their yeah. the voices of the people and what they went through. The but black in, voices. In 87, they didn't have digital tape to where they could just endlessly roll and save everything. I know. So. I was, <laughs> you look at you as the audio, <sighs> the audio file. You're just like, oh, I man. wish I know, we could I hear so, it in his I know, voice. Me too. I know. And I was so grateful, though, just to get that he had this from this documentary from 1987. So yeah. I was really grateful for that. But this is what makes me really respect Jack. Because this was a huge win for him. Nobody came out of the woodwork and said, hey, you got this wrong. And the black soldiers, I'm sure, were like, you know what? Nobody's ever going to tell this story right. And he used that documentary. or He didn't use it. But as a result of that documentary, you know, he ended up going and working for, I believe it was CNN and working on other documentaries. So, I mean, it really was a huge boon to his career. But he looked back and he's like, you know. I mean, that resonates as a reporter, having someone look you in the eye and just like, you don't even know what you're talking about is more powerful than if someone was screaming and yelling at you and acting like you didn't, you were clueless. Or you sending know? you nasty emails or with send- a bunch of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or the armchair, like Twitterverse or whatever, like having someone eyeball to eyeball and just that sense of like, you know, you just don't get it. And so I, I really respect that he went back and was like, I want to get it. And he did. Mm-hmm. So he also spoke with another soldier that made an impression. His name was John Hamilton. He was just the sweetest man. He was just the just kindest. His wife just fought with him not to be interviewed by this, this reporter from Seattle who had just wandered into their lives 50 years after this event. But... He had this this sense that, you know, you don't understand what, what life was like. You're prioritizing these things as if you get what it was like in the 1940s. And, you know, looking back, the warning signs that they were throwing up at me. Now, both of them said that they didn't kill anyone, that they shouldn't have been convicted. But, you know, I wasn't there to tell that story and they didn't offer any proof other than their denial. But both Les Stewart and John Hamilton stayed with me all those years afterwards. And, you know, not every day, but, you know, when I would think about it, because it was a pretty big story that I had done. And when we started researching again, you know, those, those voices didn't leave me. Jack says he went there to get information on a historic case. He went to the South. He went to try to talk to the black soldiers. But despite the awards and hoopla, like I said, all those years later in 2001, there was something about the story that just didn't pass the old reporter gut check. These men were also protecting their families from these stories. They were clearly felt an outrage and an indignation that they had been accused and eventually convicted of something that they believed they did not do. And yet that was not the only incident in their life, as John Hamilton said, where they were accused or or, or treated differently. This was one more in a whole lifetime of that. 
In these days, when you and I are having this conversation, that's certainly something that has been said loud and clear and often, how in particular white Americans like me don't accept as a baseline that daily grind of, in this case, having your word doubted or or even maybe worse, what they were trying to say was as if a particular bad incident were one life-changing incident as opposed to the reality for them, which is every day there were instances. And walking out the door, there's instances of, of the sort of discrimination that they felt. Um, and I think that's the message that they were trying to tell me then, but assumed that how much effort to put into it, how much was I going to get of that or not? I've heard this before from the black community that, you know, we've been shouting for so long that we're treated this way. If you haven't heard it by now, we're done shouting. Like, we're done wasting our energy on people who are never going to get it. Yeah, I I just, it's so powerful to me, this, this idea of, like, not getting it, people not getting it. And what, what is it going to take to have people get it? And as somebody who wants to understand, coming from that reporter perspective of wanting to understand, it's so easy for me to say, please keep explaining it. Please try to tell people how you feel. Please like keep, you know, living this on the surface constantly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to try to get other people to understand. I mean, it's it's an ask that I think a lot of people do to the black community in particular of like, what's it like to be black? What's it like to be whatever? These questions that they're constantly barraged with that, you know, again, they're like, I've answered this how many times? I don't want to keep answering it. Mm -hmm. If you don't get it, you're not going to get it. And I'm done wasting my energy and my time. Well, and another issue in this story is the perpetuation of the people who are actually telling the story. And that was one of the things that Jack wanted to go deeper on is that he was put he put together that documentary and it's all with secondary sources. And as we know, there's an agenda there, especially back in 1944. I told that story in 1987, the one that got all the accolades, but it was a lie. And it wasn't an intentional lie, but it was the kind of lie that reporters are often guilty of either committing or perpetuating. Because it was a lie of relying almost exclusively on secondary sources. I based my later reporting on what I could easily and accessibly find from the writings of the mainstream media who were covering the events back in 1944. And at the time, without really considering or maybe even knowing all of the the incredible traps that that involved, the reporters were almost exclusively all-male, They were certainly almost exclusively white, although there were some important exceptions to that that we were able to uncover. And at that time, America generally, and journalists in particular, were for the most part swept up in the sense of patriotism that America was defending itself from tyranny and that the the military were our heroes. They were rescuing us and they could do no harm. And furthermore, the military itself had and often employed legal censorship of things that they deemed to be embarrassing or of some sort of strategic disadvantage. And so the kinds of reports that were being done by then were being done by people who frankly had a whole lot of burdens. What changed this was not relying on secondary sources, but looking for primary sources, looking for the sort of 
testimonial, documentary, anything that we could find that were done by those folks who were involved in this case at the time, because that had a much closer uh, chance of finding not just the kind of color we were looking for, but as it turned out, the kind of truth that we were looking for. That's why investigative journalism is so, so important and is so expensive, but it's so worth it. So armed with around 300 names, Jack and Leslie crisscrossed the United States looking for those critical primary sources, the people that were there, the people that were involved. As it turns out, this would take years. With this giant list of last known addresses and a map of where they were likely located, we packed up our vehicle and we drove all around the United States. We went everywhere. We went to the deep south. We went to the upper Midwest. We went to virtually every major uh, university that had collections on civil rights or the military history of that particular time. But what really ended up being the key was we ended up at the National Archives. And that was what completely changed the story around. So it's funny because Jack and Leslie rolled up their sleeves and earnestly went up to the help desk at the National Archives. And we're like, OK, we're ready to see uh, what happened at Fort Lawton in 1944. And it wasn't as easy as they thought it would be. Literally would get there first in line every morning before they opened. We'd get our coffee and wait so that we could be at our favorite little tables. And we would spend all day long requesting files, going through them, looking and looking and looking. And we'd often be the last ones there. We'd go grab dinner. We'd get up the next morning, get another cup of coffee, and start the whole process over day after day after day. But they didn't find anything. Literally the largest court-martial in World War II history, and there wasn't a shred of documentation. That's bizarre. Yeah, but they found a smoking gun. Or I turned to Leslie and said, you know, there's nothing here. We're not going to find it. I know we've put a lot of effort into us. We're all the way across country. And she said, well, I'm not going to give up. So she left and went back to the, the researcher. And the guy looked at her and said, well, you seem like the persistent type. You've looked at all these other <laughs> categories and you've looked at the Court-martial records, Fort Lawton records, uh, POW records, black soldier records. He said, we have a category under World War II called miscellaneous. And literally, it was a, a gigantic sections of records, which no one had really ever bothered to plow through or no one had ever categorized. So we began to just randomly decide, let's try to grab some records out of miscellaneous for World War II. And as we started that same process over day in, day out. One afternoon, Leslie taps me on the shoulder and says, Jack, look at this. And what she had come across was the first page of what turned out to be thousands of pages of what had been for 50 years a classified secret report that had been prepared during the trial in Seattle that showed that the United States Army and Leon Jaworski knew before they prosecuted these men that they likely did not do it. And that at a minimum, the army had violated all of its own legal standards, due process, equal protection. It was, in fact, the smoking gun. So before we get to the details of this report, which I'm sure will be juicy, <laughs> yeah. 
The fact that they had a miscellaneous section I know. that was so full of mm-hmm. this documentation makes me think it wasn't just happenstance, coincidence, or laziness, mm-hmm. but it was a determination to hide this from yeah. anyone who might come looking. Well, yeah, and apparently after the riot and lynching, the army sent out General Cook. He was known as Cookie to do a thorough investigation. His investigation would later be classified. So it had that stamp that we've all seen in red classified for 50 years. And so what I think happened, and Jack explained this to me, was that it was in all these files. It's not like the JFK report where everybody's like, oh, here's the JFK stuff, you know? It was something that had been so buried over the years that the person going through it was probably like, okay, it's declassified. And so then it's just still in this little miscellaneous. I'm not buying that. I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. Because if it's thousands of pages, this isn't a single document. This isn't like a few pages that we can just say, oh, it's probably nothing really important. Mm -hmm. It's thousands of pages. Clearly, this was an important document. Yeah, but I think that it had been so effectively buried. Buried that the, you know, they have, he was describing, it's like, they have to keep all these documents. Believe me, I'm not trying to, like, think that the government is great here and that they're like, yes, we're so transparent. Go ahead. Look at our, look at our files. <laughs> I'm just saying that I think that it had been so buried that when, when the people that went through looking at these files, it, it was time for them to be declassified. But right. you're right. But when it was declassified, is my point, when they went back and declassified it, yeah. the fact that they didn't bother to then organize it in the correct way so people could see it, oh, could yeah. identify it, that they left it in miscellaneous. Oh, excellent point. Come yes, on. yes, yes. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. And didn't say, hey, this is egregious. We need to go back and look at it. Yes. So now that we have... Or we don't have it, but Jack and Leslie, who never gave up, and Leslie is just so just amazing in this story. His wife, they're just they're, they're just a great team, right? Yeah. Now that we have this, let's go back seventy six years, and all of this is in Jack and Leslie's book on American soil, which I highly, highly recommend because it's so detailed. We we can't get into every little nook and cranny as much as I would love to, but let's piece together what they think really happened that night. So in July 1944, Allied troops had just marched into Paris, booting out the Nazis. The war seemed like it was finally turning around and victory over Nazi Germany was becoming a reality with every passing day. And then suddenly, Seattle was in the spotlight. The once way out Fort Lawton had secretly changed because war planners were revving up. And they're looking at plans to defeat Japan. So they're organizing the war machine to ship 120,000 men a month into the Pacific War Zone. And that has to come via the West Coast ports. The larger ports in San Francisco and Los Angeles began to be overwhelmed. And suddenly, Fort Lawton, the once sleepy little outpost, just became this buzzing military base. Fort Lawton, as I said before, was... 703 acres. It's an amazing piece of property. I mean, to this day, it is so beautiful. It's almost unbelievable, this raw, huge piece of land, like 12 miles away from downtown Seattle. But isn't it sort of on a hill a little bit and you could see the water? And yes, I mean, it's yes. a beautiful, yes. it's a beautiful area. So it's an, at that time, it was an active military base, but it had forested lands filled with the you know typical Pacific Northwest fair, sword ferns, Douglas fir, maples, cedar, and swaths of open land. At the edge of the property, there was this magnificent bluff overlooking a sandy beach, and then the expansive Puget Sound. And in the distance, 
you know, you can, there's this breathtaking view of the Olympic and Cascade Mountain Range, and of course, Mount Rainier. I mean, just idyllic. You might be wondering why, to begin with, there were even Italian prisoners of war at Fort Lawton. In 1943, 100,000 Italian soldiers had just surrendered in Africa, which meant thousands were shipped to the United States. Whole divisions of Italians, abandoned by their German masters, gave up, begged to be captured. So many of the Italian prisoners of war were loyal to Italy, not Mussolini fascists. After Italy surrendered, these Italian soldiers were separated from the fascists and pledged their allegiance to the Allies. By July 1944, there were 178 of these Italian service units in communities across the country, employing nearly 34,000 Italians. 200 of those were at Fort Lawton, and these Italian soldiers had been carefully screened. They were thought to be unlike the highly guarded Italian prisoners of war who were committed fascists. Dressed in regulation U.S. Army uniforms, they wear green brassards and cap patches bearing the word Italy. Welcome volunteers now working in the cause of the United Nations. What happened, though, is that the freedoms afforded to the Italian prisoners of war didn't go unnoticed to African-American soldiers who were barred from many Seattle bars and restaurants because of their color. To me, they was happy-go-lucky guys. They was treated just as fair as they treated me, if not fair. They had more authority than we had. They could move any time of day or any time of night and go where they want to, but we couldn't. Those were two of the black men that Jack had interviewed back in 1987. And Jack goes into more detail today in describing what it was like for black Americans in 1944. Black soldiers were most certainly given very few opportunities within the United States Army for true advancement. They had to stay with uh, segregated units. They were not given often the kinds of uh, assignments in combat or otherwise that would give them a chance to move up the ladder. Most of the work they ended up doing was very, very menial. The units that were involved in this were people who loaded and unloaded ships. They were stevedores. And they were getting ready to go into some of the most dangerous fighting in the South Pacific where they would land craft into, onto the islands. When Italy surrendered... We still had all kinds of prisoners of war in the United States. And so as a manpower saving decision, the U.S. Army decided that it would allow those Italian soldiers who would pledge their loyalty to the U.S. and to the Allies to go on to forts in America to do things like cook and clean and garden and, and all that to free up Americans who could then go over and fight the war. The problem said Leon Jaworski, was that those Italians were also given the freedom to have passes that would let them go into downtown Seattle and visit the clubs and the bars and the restaurants or go into people's private homes and be entertained for dinner. And Jaworski's theory was that the black soldiers got angrier and angrier at these Italian soldiers. The more they saw how they as Americans were being treated worse than what the Italians were in their mind. And one day, in a very racist way, he describes it as it was the way that black soldiers would behave. They would just let their emotions get ahead of them and they decided to go over and beat up a bunch of Italians and a group of blacks decided to take the chance when they saw one starting to flee to grab him and bring him down and lynch him. That was the story, and that's 
what the court believed in the court martial, and that's what people were convicted of. I mean, if you read the book and you listen to the way that military people described, you know, black American soldiers who are giving their lives for the war and very extremely patriotic and the way that they were treated. I mean, it's just I, I well, the fact that a prisoner of war had luxuries and experiences and was allowed to do things that the black soldiers were not. Well, and here's where I got back to like the twist of the knife here, because although rightly so, you know, black soldiers noticed that and that they did feel some animosity toward Italian prisoners of war because of the freedoms that they had. According to Jack's research, a black soldier among those detained after the riot would later write a friend in Washington, D.C., giving his version of events. And he said that the white MPs had been harassing the Italians for days at the post exchange, quote, and trying to get the colored troops involved. In general, he said it was the whites who resented the Italians far more than the blacks. According to Cookie's report, white soldiers held a grudge and deep-seated anger. In fact, there was a recorded skirmish between white soldiers and Italian POWs the Saturday and Sunday before the riot and lynching in the post-exchange at the base where the soldiers gathered. And was this ever brought up at trial? It's It was like buried. Uh. No, it wasn't brought up in trial. In 1944, a reporter from the Seattle PI wrote that White American troops ejected a large number of Italians who they charged were monopolizing the seats. Apparently, an MP who responded to the fight was a friend of one of those white soldiers. That MP was Clyde Lomax. So you'll want to remember that name for later. So they're Lomax. setting Clyde Lomax. Lomax. So they're setting they're setting it up here. They're acting like the black soldiers are the ones who are jealous and all that when really when really it's the white soldiers. And this is not just in Fort Lawton. This is across the country. There's many letters in Jack's book where it describes how bitter the the white soldiers are. And understandably so. They're off fighting in the war. And because Geneva Conventions and all of that, you know, they, they can't make the Italians fight for us. And so there is this, they're off fighting the war and the Italians are out schmoozing, you know, the girlfriends. Gardening and, and, and going to the nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And schmoozing the girls. And so it's it's a big deal. Another thing to note on August 14th, it was a payday. And African-American port companies on Fort Lawton were shipping out to the war zone the next morning. So all these black soldiers were getting on a ship the next morning. So it was a party night the night before. And so these very young men, for the most part, from all around the United States, knew that this could be their very last night on American soil. They they may not come back. It was the end of the war. They didn't know it was near the end, but they knew that a whole lot of people had gone overseas and come back damaged or dead. And so like young men then and now who face that kind of prospect, Some of them wrote home notes to their loved ones. Some read the Bible. Some did the chores they were supposed to do. But a very large number of those young soldiers took advantage of partying and and just having one last blowout. There were a couple of parties that were not authorized. There were women from Seattle who were snuck onto the base without authorization. Bootleg liquor that they would simply toss over the gates. And it was a big party night that night. So that night at 11 o'clock, taps was played over the loudspeaker, which meant the base should quiet down and get ready for bed. But but that didn't happen. Three Italian POWs were just returning from a night out on the town in Seattle, taking advantage of a new program launched where Italian POWs were able to get passes to go have dinner with families in Seattle. One small group of black soldiers, a few of whom were quite drunk, not all, 
and a small group of Italian prisoners of war happened to cross each other's paths. And one of the drunk Italians said something. One of the black soldiers, equally drunk, said something back. And the two of them escalated, just these two individuals. It was extremely dark. And the two of them lunged at each other. And the Italian got the upper hand with one big swing. He was able to hit the black soldier in the jaw and knock him out cold. The Italians realizing, whoops, we better get out of here, <laughs> yeah. hightailed it to their barracks. So this was a sprawling fort, and yet they put the black soldiers in what was then called, as I said, the colored section next to the Italian POWs so far away from the main part of the fort. So they're basically on their own, right? The soldier that got cold cocked and his friends carried him back to the barracks because he was out like a light. In fact, I think one of the black soldiers gave him CPR. They brought him near one of the barracks where there was more light. And as other black soldiers came over to see what was going on, there was a lot of blood from where he had, had a gash on his head. And rumors began that they had been attacked by Italians. A few soldiers then decided on their own to try to chase these guys. And when they did, the Italians were waiting for them and they got hit by a, a two by four or a brick. Their colleagues brought them back and suddenly black soldiers gathering in the light of the barracks are looking at several of their colleagues who are bleeding. And again, in somewhat the drunkenness, the call starts to go out. We're under attack. We're under attack. So here are a few of the black soldiers remembering what it was like being awoken with the call to avenge their friend. I don't know, just like a whole lot of noise. Get up. Get up. And that guy told me that they having a, riot, a battle down there, whooping up on, you know, the Italian prisoners war. Next thing I know, guys was running. Some I knew, some I didn't know. One thing that's critical to understand right now is that the soldiers had just watched hours and hours of army movies about never leaving your buddy behind. This was the very end of several weeks of training, some of the most important of which were films that they were all required to watch that essentially talked in great gory detail about your responsibility as a soldier when one of your comrades is attacked. And this was because in World War I, they realized a lot of soldiers wouldn't even pull the trigger of their gun when they were under attack. They just got scared and they, they just wet their pants or ran away. And so in World War II, there was a huge effort to be able to say, essentially, you got to be a killing machine on behalf of your buddy. And these guys were all heading overseas the next day, and they had just gone through this interrogation. And so their training kicked in, and they said, we're under attack. Let's go get these guys. So around 200 black soldiers ran to the Italian barracks. A few had a, had knives, but for the most part, they grabbed what they could. Rocks, bricks, someone ripped up a picket fence, and the posts within that fence were grabbed to use as weapons. From what I could see, people were just throwing rocks. You could see people knocking out windows and stuff like that. Screaming, hollering, different words, you know, within Italian. And so Jack says the fighting went on for over 40 minutes. They started throwing rocks at the windows of the Italian barracks. They started throwing bricks and they had sticks. And in one small building, there was a melee that lasted for almost 10, 15 minutes. It was the orderly building where a couple of U.S. soldiers 
also happened to be, they were interpreters who were there to supervise the Italian soldiers. And in the darkness, there were punches, there were people whose skulls were cracked, there were people who were cowardly, there were people who showed some bravery, but it was chaos. One Italian screamed and jumped out of his window And according to the prosecutors, that one Italian was then immediately set upon by black soldiers and dragged a very far distance away down the bottom of the hill to where there was a an obstacle course. And then somehow those black soldiers had a a noose that they were able to put around this guy's neck. They threw the other part of the the noose over the uh, obstacle course, this wire that was stretched between two massive maple trees. They pulled it and... They hung him. They killed him. And then they tied it off and left. So you might be wondering where the military police are in all of this. A bit ago, I told you about the white MP to remember whose friend got in the scrape with the Italian soldiers the previous day. That same MP, Clyde Lomax, was one of the two MPs assigned to keep the peace in the colored section and the Italian POW barracks. Turns out there were, in fact, two white military policemen who were there that night. And instead of intervening as they were required to do, they basically sat back and said, man, this is great. We don't like black people all that much. And we don't like Italians because they're after our girls. So go at it, boys. Go ahead. So Private Clyde Lomax was on the scene almost immediately. He actually loaded the soldier that was donked out by the Italian into his Jeep, but delayed transporting him to the hospital. Lomax failed to request backup from fellow MPs or to even notify the chain of command of the severity of the situation. And as our research showed, not only did they not intervene, not only did they not go try to get reinforcements and get people to come and break up the fight, Not only did they not do anything to stop it, but they actually actively encouraged it. And in one case, handed one of the black soldiers a weapon and encouraged them to go use it. And so rather than this being some sort of display of black soldiers frustrated by the way Italian prisoners of war were being treated by comparison, it was instead black soldiers coming to the defense of what they thought were their colleagues being attacked. And then no one from the rest of the fort who was responsible trying to to stop this. So more than 40 minutes passed before a contingent of white MPs arrived to find that black soldiers had entered the Italian bunkhouse and orderly room and had severely beaten and stabbed the Italians along with four American translators that were present. 32 men were later hospitalized. A dozen sustained severe injuries, including three fractured skulls, penetrating knife wounds, and shattered bones. The military policemen restored order without taking anyone into custody. Now, those those 32 who were injured, mm-hmm. were they all Italians or from both sides? It was pretty much all Italian soldiers. And then those four American translators, they were American soldiers. They were just translators. Right. But I mean, the black soldiers didn't sustain the injuries. I think they got some injuries, but not anything where they'd have to be hospitalized for. So the military policemen restored order without taking anyone into custody. Later, they claimed it had been too dark to identify any of the participants in the riot. The next morning, Lomax accompanied by a black MP, discovered the body of prisoner Guglielmo Olivato at the foot of Magnolia Bluff, hanging from a noose on the obstacle course. 
And when I say morning, it was five in the morning. There was no light. It was completely dark. A white military policeman was driving a beach at the base of the cliffs on the Magnolia Bluffs. And when he got to a certain point, he stopped the vehicle and shined a light and saw the Italian prisoner of war, Guglielmo Olivoto, hanging. And heroically went running up to his supervisors, got in his Jeep, and told them, look what I found, look what I found, someone was lynched. It was suspicious right away, and actually that's how we opened the book, is him discovering that body. Because he was in a place that there was no reason for he, the, the white military policeman, to necessarily go there. And to locate the body, he actually had to go in the darkness in a very unlikely place and in a very unlikely way in order to be able to see this lynched body. So there's some suspicion that he knew it was there and he went looking for it. And and how would he know it was there? Almost immediately, though, after Olivado's body was discovered, Colonel Harry Branson, he's the Fort Lawton commanding officer, ordered all the evidence to be destroyed. No fingerprints were secured, no footprints saved, no weapons properly cataloged. And did he give any reason for this? <laughs> the Italian barracks were literally repaired and repainted within 24 hours. I love that look on your face. I know. I was like, Jack, was he doing that to protect the black American soldiers? No. He ordered white military policemen to go through and look for anything that might be described as a weapon, a knife, a brick, a piece of wood. They piled all those things together. And then he said, I want you to go clean up that mess, you, the, the white soldiers, get all those windows fixed, get everything done. And basically, he completely cleaned up the scene of what was a murder scene. Not only that, but the place where the actual lynching took place, he never secured. And for the rest of that day, other soldiers who were training going through the obstacle course ran roughshod over that course. And Branson tried to ship the black soldiers to San Francisco that same day. He was so worried about what the Pentagon would do to him if they found out that he had lost control of his fort. Ah, so he was doing a CYA. <laughs> Big time. Okay. Big time. You know, when he was hired at Fort Lawton as a commanding officer, it wasn't a big deal. Fort Lawton was like nothing, not much going on. But as the war turned, it became a huge hub. So he was like in way over his head. Thankfully, some of his subordinates reported his actions to the Pentagon, and that stopped the black soldiers from being shipped out. The black soldiers were not, in fact, put on a train as they were supposed to be that day. Instead, they were rounded up and put behind barbed wire into mm. this makeshift outdoor prison to wait to figure out what was going to happen next. So the army is freaking out at this point when the press got a hold of the story. Italians wanted someone to answer for what they referred to as the uncalled for aggression against Italian POWs. Another worry the army had was that they had prioritized treating prisoners of war humanely in order to conform to the Geneva Conventions. Remember, there were American prisoners of war in Europe and poorly treated Italian prisoners of war in America. The price of that would be paid for by a American prisoners of war in Europe. Upper levels of the army and of the U.S. government were mortified, just absolutely mortified, because it was a time in the war when we knew we were going to defeat Germany. They were, we'd already had D-Day. We were already approaching Berlin. Uh, there was still the awful Battle of the Bulge that winter. 
But in general, the European war was going to be won. The only question at that period was how much of Europe was going to be free and how much was the uh, Soviet army who were advancing from the east going to be pulling under their influence. And there was a real threat. And if you look at what were the Eastern European countries, Italy was right on the border. And Italy had previously surrendered prior to when the Germany did, a full year before they did. The United States was just terrified that this looked bad. This looked really bad. So not only was the the fort commander, you know, CYA, but also the army at this point. And now I know why all these documents wound up in miscellaneous. <laughs> yeah. So the army sent an up and coming prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, to conduct a two month investigation. They also sent General Elliot Cook, which is the classified document. He did all that that investigation, the thousand pages. And his job was to see, you know, who had failed to prevent the riot, who was responsible for this. And he was a real taskmaster. He really wanted to know what happened. Cook had begun this investigation before Jaworski arrived. And his job, quite secretly, was to go to Seattle and see whose head should roll for the screw up that would allow black soldiers to allegedly attack and kill a prisoner of war. Who needs to be demoted? Who needs to be fired? Who needs to be whatever? It wasn't something the public was supposed to ever know about. But what they did was put together this spectacular investigation before the trial. The the murder happened on August 14th. The trial did not start until November. And in between, Cook interviewed Everyone who was involved in this, every Italian that he could find, every white soldier he could find, every black soldier he could find, was was fearless in his questioning. And thank goodness, every last interrogation was recorded. Not, Not audio recording, but they were all transcribed. And so part of what we found that day was this massive, massive report that he had prepared, General Cook, for the Pentagon. And what he concluded was that the army had screwed up terribly. He wanted the commander of the fort to be discharged, which he was, but we never knew about it as the public. It was done secretly. And he he pointed the way of all the mistakes that they had made and gave this giant direction based on everything that we read about who really did kill this Italian. And what made that so devastating was these folks under oath terrified of of Cook, gave all sorts of delicious details that essentially in many cases absolved a lot of the black soldiers who were charged. And yet, a couple of weeks later, we have the entire trial testimony. When that eventually happens, those very same people that, that he had interrogated were witnesses for the prosecution and they told a different story, one that obviously based on the facts were often lies or distortions. And that was the lies and distortions that were used to convict these men. So I'm dying to know what really happened. Is it too soon to ask? It's coming up. I know there's a lot to give. Remember when I talked Come about on. Those, those onions? <laughs> okay, so Jaworski disregarded much of Cook's findings and started putting together his own narrative of events that black American soldiers started a riot against Italian POWs that led to the death of Olivoto because they were jealous. And I really think that this says so much about the mindset of the nation at that time that they would rather blame 
black Americans because they didn't see them as equal. In the eyes of other nations, the Americans probably thought if we blame it on black people, they won't see that as the real America. That's not really us. I, I you know can what? just that's, imagine that's that another that's layer that is 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 the absolutely the mind. Yeah, yeah. Because the way that they did this, the way that Jaworski, who later became this highfalutin, this was a case for him that he was to go there and make it go away and try to find a way that it's not America's fault. Yeah, and this was a way because we saw, you know, black soldiers as not really true Americans, not full Americans, not really part of the real America. Well, if we blame it on them, then other nations won't blame us. Yeah, and we don't have to be accountable to anybody. Exactly. So during weeks of interrogations, Jaworski's investigators offered immunity to several soldiers who would agree to testify. Most refused. They interrogated us. They questioned us extensively. <laughs> you wasn't, you know, you couldn't go nowhere. You know, you got your meals, but uh, you were just there. You know, you didn't see nobody. They transferred me from Seattle to Tacoma and all these places, and they'd get me out on the road and stop and said some little nice little threatening words. That, you know, you may die out here. And they used their, uh, their scare tactics to make people confess to things they don't do. Understandably, the black American soldiers felt betrayed. If they're going to try me and put me in jail for some prisoners of war that we just got through fighting, you know, they're going to put me in jail, I'm an American citizen. I'm going to take a chance on my life to defend this country, yet I'm going to have to be put in prison for something I didn't do. And as Jaworski laid his plans to make a case, he offered some black soldiers immunity. This boy Dan was a soldier in the camp just like I was. They told him he'd get immunity free from prosecution if he say he's senior so-and-so. So he'd pick out who he wanted to pick out of that, out of that lineup. So Jaworski got five black soldiers to basically turn on their colleagues. Decades later, all five were said to have unrelated grudges against many of the men they accused. Most Italian prisoners of war couldn't identify a single black soldier. Remember, it was super dark that night. It was all happened so quick and so fast. And you know how the fights and... Yeah, you know. and everybody's probably a little drunk. Oh, yeah. But two were able to identify 43 black soldiers. And Jaworski used those two as his main witnesses. Wait, so two people identified... 43 people who were yeah. in there fighting? Yeah. How did those two people possibly even come across 43 people in a 20-minute melee? Well, let's just say, <laughs> you know, something rotten in Denmark, yeah. you know. Okay, so out of those 200 black soldiers, Jaworski determined that 43 were to be prosecuted, all for rioting, and three of the 43 had the additional charge of murder in the first degree, despite zero evidence to prove they were anywhere near Olivato. The people he decided to charge were very often people who had similar names. I mean, literally the same last name or, you know, very similar first and last name. And it was very easy to conclude based on that, that someone might have said, I think that guy did it or a guy named Jones. And well, there's two guys named Jones. I don't know which one. So he charged both of them and both would be convicted. The real smoking gun in all of this was the discovery that the only witnesses that Jaworski had out of all the dozens he put on the stand 
whoever purported to actually make an actual eyewitness account of them. On the one hand, were people who were admitted, well, I can't tell one black guy from the other. And on the other hand, and this is a more complicated story, but those two who were his key witnesses turned out to be identified. My Leslie Hammond, my wife, found this as fascist sympathizers by the army's own intelligence and they had snuck into this unit. Yeah, so they were fascists. They so they would separate the fascist Italians prisoners of war, people who were allegiant to Mussolini and all that. And unapologetic. Like, unapologetic. And then the others who had basically been forced to go into the army and fight for Mussolini and they didn't even want to be there and they wanted the war to be over. So what would be their motivation though to identify the people who, you know, they say murdered Olivetto. Like maybe just to cause chaos, to mess with people's lives, to get favors. I mean, it's not clear as to why they did it. But the fact that out of all the Italian prisoners of war, they couldn't only two of them could identify, you know, any of the soldiers. And then those two, 43. I mean, it just seems like what? And another thing is, since all the evidence was destroyed, including the murder weapon, the the rope used to lynch Olivato was said to have been misplaced, quote unquote. Jaworski's case relied on hearsay, innuendo, and guilt by association. No one saw any of the three men on trial for murder anywhere near the hanging scene. And as if the case wasn't already stacked against the black soldiers, they were only given two army lawyers to defend 43 black American soldiers. They were only given 10 days to prepare a defense. Accused of rioting, a charge punishable by life in prison, three black soldiers, as I said, were charged with first-degree murder, If convicted, their punishment was death by hanging. During the trial, one of the attorneys noticed that Jaworski was reading from a document that he didn't have and objected to it. That was the Cook Report. And of course, Jaworski was quick to be like, you can't see this. This is classified. So they didn't. So the defense never even got that document. But we know for a fact the prosecution not only had it, but had read it and knew what was in it. Yeah. And actively tried to make sure that none of these things that we've talked about so far came to the surface, that the white soldiers were really the ones that were super, you know, pissed off at the Italians and all the other that they had been fighting with Italians a couple of days before, you know, all of this stuff, Jaworski actively tried to keep out of the hands of the defense. Mm. So in the end, what happened? Two soldiers had charges dropped, 13 soldiers were acquitted, and 28 were convicted, two of manslaughter. It was, as I said, the largest army court martial during World War II. So who did they think murder Olivato? I know you've been waiting for it. Yes. Clyde Lomax. In the end, there was only one who had the means, motive, and opportunity. And we were told after the cases were overturned that if this one guy were still alive, that the uh, army likely would have pursued him and charged him decades later with murder. Clyde Lomax, who was the white military policeman who stood by, it was his job to break up the fight. That's what he was specifically assigned to be in that area to do. It was his job, if it was beyond his control, to call in reinforcements. And he was actually secretly court-martialed by the U.S. Army three weeks after the conviction of all of these black soldiers because by then there were a couple of people who knew but never made it public until decades later when we discovered it, that something was very, very, very wrong with Jaworski's version of the case. 
And in putting two and two together, rather than bring it to public attention and charging him with murder, they charged him with deserting his post because none of his fellow military policemen would stand up for him. And everyone said that he disappeared during those key moments when Olivoto was hung. Furthermore, Jaworski made a big deal out of this detail that these black soldiers would have dragged this Italian prisoner of war this considerable distance of many, many hundreds of feet down a steep, steep cliff, the Magnolia Bluffs, to where they eventually hung him. And yet the autopsy report made it clear that there wasn't a single scratch or bruise on his body, not a single one. Clyde Lomax was from a part of Louisiana where the Ku Klux Klan was very, very uh, big at that time. In fact, the Grand Wizard was from there for a while. His, his family, whom we contacted, did not dispute our version, although they wouldn't have had personal knowledge. But he was, in fact, court-martialed and kicked out of the uh, army just literally a week or two after this trial for having left his post. So he was court-martialed found guilty of leaving his post, we have reason to believe that he would have committed the murder. But do they actually have evidence that he committed it? Did anybody see it happen? No. In fact, this probably won't come as a surprise, but Jaworski knew that, you know, he had was away from his post and was going to be dishonorably discharged, Clyde Lomax, and yet used him as a witness for the prosecution. <laughs> Of course he did. Of course. Of course he did. Yeah. So much of the circumstantial evidence points to the fact that probably what happened was Olivato was the one that was seen jumping out of the window and running away from some black soldiers and that he probably went into the woods because there's that bluff. It, it mm-hmm. went, the barracks went right up to the bluff and there was some woods there. Probably saw Clyde Lomax thinking safety and that he got into the MP's vehicle uh-huh. And so the MP could have done something to him and then brought him down there because, you know, if the black soldiers did it, he would be probably dragged to have marks on him. There was nothing. There was no marks. Yeah. No major marks on him to to do that. And do we know if Lomax and Olivato had any kind of previous run ins or relationship, like any reason why he would have picked him out in particular or it was just opportunity? It could have been just opportunity. You know, there was um, Olivato was very quiet. He became very reserved and removed. You know, he's a very religious man. He, you know, didn't drink or smoke, didn't have any children. And he was kind of he went and saw a psychologist on the base about a month before this happened, because apparently he was really scared of the black soldiers because of his experiences that he'd had in North Africa and that in that combat area, the way that he'd been treated or had seen Italian prisoners of war there before they surrendered had been treated. So there was no evidence that he was poorly treated or mistreated, but he was like acting really weird and just kind of acting scared. But Mm -hmm. I mean, to answer your question, we don't know if there was any kind of issue between Olivato and Lomax, mm-hmm. but he was the only one that had the the time to do it, the means to do it, and the opportunity right. to do it. And you mentioned that some of the prosecutions were overturned. Yes. So after the war, the longer prison, prison sentences were reduced by a clemency board. After Jack's book came out in 2005, the other men, long overdue, would get their dishonorable discharges reversed 
though most of the soldiers had long since passed away. So I talked with Representative Jim McDermott, who is also a doctor. He's a representative in, in Seattle, or was. And he says that he was traveling in 2005 and was given Jack's book just as he was getting on a plane home to Seattle. And he had never heard of this story. I was absolutely intrigued by this story, which I had never heard of before. I've been, I've walked in Fort Lawton many times, it was a great place to go on a Sunday and walk around for an hour. I was really surprised when I heard this. I thought, this is, this is absolutely wrong what happened. So he introduced a bill demanding that the Army reopen the Fort Lawton case based on the allegations made on American soil. The bill, with dozens of co-sponsors, remained in the House Armed Services Committee until the chairman of that committee, U.S. Representative Duncan Hunter, received a letter from his constituent, who happened to be Juliana Hammond, which is the mother of Jack, who was like, hey, what's going on with this? I want to see some action for these black American soldiers who were so mistreated. And so <laughs> it's, you know, not only Jack is like, you know, got the crusade going, but his mom. I love that his mom steps I, in. I, you know, mom will sit back and mom will let you handle your own life. <laughs> but there comes a time when mom needs to stand up and stand behind her son. And I'm so proud of her. Yeah. And the black Black American soldiers. And so they were eventually, uh, the convictions were overturned. They were given honorable discharges and back pay was, you know, given to the families. In 2008, they wanted to have a ceremony for the black soldiers. Only two of the soldiers at the time lived long enough to see their names cleared. That Samuel Snow and Roy Montgomery. Samuel Snow was well enough to make the journey to Seattle. Barely. He made the trip out to Seattle. And the family from Wisconsin made the trip out. We had a big ceremony at Fort Lawton and presented the flag and, and went, went through all the proper military actions to make it official. He came out, he's, he's came to the ceremony, this guy, the one who was living, and, and began to feel a little sick a little later in the day and went home to his hotel and died. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like he was waiting for that moment of peace for that moment where he knew that the world knew who he really was. Yeah, I mean, the dishonorable discharge for a black man in post-World War II America made it very difficult to get a job. As if it wasn't already. As if it wasn't already, yes. His son would later go on to say that getting that honorable discharge meant more to him than his own health. I asked Representative McDermott why there isn't a plaque or some sort of acknowledgement of what happened at Fort Lawton. Um, I think you're lifting a rock uh, un un under which there tends to be a little systemic racism that's still there. What's incredible is how many of the black soldiers like John Hamilton, who Jack interviewed back in 1987, refused to let this injustice define his life. From that experience, how to hold your pose and be calm and go through whatever. Because in the ultimate end, you're going to come out. And I did. If I could go right now, we had a wall. I'd go and say whatever capacity I could do right now. And see, I carry a clear conscience with me. I did then, I do now. I'm still a citizen of this country. I'm an American citizen, you know. Even though I was treated wrong, 
I wasn't going to let that stop me from trying to proceed, you know, try to go places. Thank you so much for bringing us their story and for letting us hear their voices. I think that's so important. And I'm I like I have so much respect and admiration and just amazement that they were able to still have respect for this country after the way that they were treated. It's amazing. So the, the thank resilience. you. Well, I mean, thank <laughs> Jack. I mean, it was a real it was really tough putting together because it's just, you know, I mean, when I asked that question to the representative uh, McDermott, like, why is there no plot? You've got a grave for Olivado, but you don't have anything saying the story of what happened to these black soldiers, how they were railroaded. And it took him about 30 seconds to say under the rock of systemic racism. Do we have some photos of the soldiers that we can share? We do. Awesome. I can't wait to share those at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. That's our website. That's where you can find more about this story, about Jack Hammond's book, where you can subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime.